Well, in, just in case some of you are wondering, the, the sheriff's car that was out there when you pulled in, he's here to make sure you really give to the offering. <laughs> no, it's Tim O'Neill's car, and, and when he's on duty, he can swing in, but he sometimes gets called away, so he has to park right there in the front. But you're all walking in saying, oh, John Palmer's in trouble. <laughs> I love you, John. It's ironic that um, one of two of the major events in Jesus' life, um, the baptism of Jesus that we're celebrating today would land on Palm Sunday. The people of Jesus' time really understood what they were doing on the day that we call Palm Sunday because they'd been looking for the promised one for a long, long time. This was a build-up to a major climax for them. And so it's, it's no coincidence that they were cheering Him on the way they were and you'll learn about that a little bit today to understand why they vested so much in this moment. But today what we're going to be looking at more in depth is the, the baptism of Jesus in the book of Matthew and Matthew chapter 3, the story where that's unfolded for us. What we have here is Matthew looking back in time, perhaps 40 or 50 years after he became a follower of Christ, looking back in time in writing down the record of what he remembered and what he witnessed and what the Holy Spirit inspired him to write down in Matthew chapter 3. So what we have here in arriving at this moment is in, in timeline in history, Caesar Augustus is dead, a new Caesar is in power, and Jesus is just arriving on the scene as this mighty rabbi, but no one knows of him yet. And we pick it up in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. If you didn't bring your Bibles with you, there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you and uh, up on the screen as well. The passages will be up there. If you don't own a Bible and you'd like to take one with you, feel free to take one of those out of the pew racks today. Join with me and, and uh, you read along as I read out loud. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. Now in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, and make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Mmm. The wild honey wouldn't be so bad, but those little legs, they get stuck in your teeth, you know? Yeah. I know, there's a thought. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, as they confessed their sins. Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 11, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in His hand and He will thoroughly clear His threshing floor. 
and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. A few years ago, I read the biography of W.A. Criswell. I don't know if uh, you're familiar with him. He was called the Prince of Preachers back in the 1950s. He had the first megachurch in the United States. He took over the First Baptist Church of Dallas in 1952. And uh, when he retired from there in the 1980s, uh, probably the late 70s, that church was almost 18,000 people. So long before the Willow Creeks and long before the Saddlebacks, W.A. Criswell was preaching the Word of God in Dallas, Texas. And he told the story of when he was baptized when he was 10 years old. In his biography, he said that he grew up in a one-room church in North Texas. And for some strange reason, he decided that he wanted to get baptized in the month of January. Well, in 1910, in Texas, they had a one-room church that had just a potbelly stove inside it. And he said when someone wanted to get baptized, what they would do is pull the floorboards up off the stage, off the platform, and underneath there was a big galvanized tank. And the morning of the baptism, the elders or the deacons of the church would go out to the pump and pump water into a pail and bring it in and dump it into this tank. He said when he was baptized, it was January 10th. And it was just a little bit above 20 degrees outside. And that portion about Jesus coming straight up out of the water, <laughs> that gave him new meaning and understanding. <laughs> so that 80 degree temperature that's in that tank today, you guys have it easy, Preston. Yeah, it sounds great, doesn't it? Okay, now let's take a look at that first verse with me. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Luke gives us even a little bit more insight into that passage. He goes a little bit further and he says, And every mountain and hill will be brought low, the crooked will become straight, the rough roads smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. How did John prepare the way for Jesus? Scripture says that he is going to make the way straight. Isaiah said he's the one that's going to make the road smooth. You may not know this, but in ancient times, when a king left his region or his realm, the city of his uh, providence, and went to any area within his region, a person would travel ahead of him, sometimes many teams of people, and they would remove all the stones off from the road. And as best they could, they would take out any sharp corners so that the king wouldn't be tumbled in his chariot. And they didn't want him to have any experience of a rough ride, so they would smooth the road before him, and they would herald before him, make smooth the way of the king, make smooth the way of the king. So what Isaiah is saying, our God, our king is so important that not only will we clear the road in front of us, but the valleys, they'll be lifted up, and the hills will be brought low, and it will be a straight, clear path for our King, 
because he's so magnificent. That's what Isaiah said about him. He called him a voice calling. Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. That was written almost 600 years before John the Baptist arrived on the scene. As a matter of fact, Malachi wrote this 400 years before John was ever born. Think about what happened in the year 1600. Columbus was sailing the ocean blue. We have pilgrims landing. Imagine somebody at that time in Plymouth sitting down and writing specifically about one individual who was going to arrive on the scene 400 years in the future. That's what you see happening here in Malachi. Look at this. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Speaking about Jesus. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, if you've been at New Hope very long at all, you know that when you see Lord of hosts in Scripture, that's a reminder that God's talking about the Lord over the angel warriors, those who are going to do battle on his behalf at the wrath of God at the coming judgment. It's very interesting that Malachi would associate the wrath of God with the arrival of John the Baptist. Now let's pick it up again with all that in mind in verse 5. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. What you see unfolding here, if you haven't read this passage before, or perhaps you haven't spent a lot of time in it, this is a national revival. This is not just Hazlitt coming to new hope. This is not just Okemos and Lansing coming to new hope and hearing the gospel of Jesus. He's talking about the entire nation. Millions of people are coming to the river to be baptized. Why? For repentance to prepare themselves for the arrival of the king. That's what John is representing. Repentance for the nation because the Messiah is about to arrive. And so what we're seeing here is not just hundreds of people Not thousands, not tens of thousands, but millions of people. All of Judea, all of the Jordan area are coming out to John. His impact was enormous. He had a huge impact on the crowd. So they traveled from a wide area. Now the Jordan River is a river that flows very fast. And so no doubt that, just so you can get the picture in your head, John's probably standing on a bend in the river where the current slows down a little bit to do this. Otherwise, they might have been washed away. And John's specifically preaching to two elements. And I want you to get these three words in your head. He's he's preaching to repentance in the kingdom. But the three words associated with repentance that I want you to get in your head, I want you to see in the Greek. The first one is metaneo. To think differently or to feel compunction. Now associate that with the word repent and put it together with this next word. Noeo. Noeo is to exercise the mind and to comprehend, to perceive, think, and understand. So what you see here is a stage unfolding. People are beginning to see something is going on. I'm beginning to perceive it. I'm beginning to comprehend. Something's arriving, and it's way bigger than me. Now look at the third word associated with it, and this is a Hebrew word, nacham. Say that with me. Nacham. You have to get it in the back of your throat. Nacham. You need to remember this, especially if you're a believer, because this is what you did when you repented of your sin. Nakam. It's a primitive word. 
And it means to breathe strongly. To be sorry. You associate those three meanings together. And what you have is not just an intellectual repentance. Oh, I really screwed up. Man, I messed that up. This is, wow, I am full of sin. And I am turning. And with a new deliverance, I am going this way. Not just a change of lifestyle, but a complete reversal of the person. John is calling people to this repentance to come back to the covenant that they had originally with Yahweh. This is ancient Israel that we're talking about. So that's why he uses the phrase, fruit in keeping with repentance. You'll see that come out when we read verse 7 in just a moment. Now the second thing I want you to remember is that he's also not just preaching of the, uh, um, the uh, repentance necessary, but he's also preaching of the arrival of the kingdom for this reason, and this is why I drew your attention to Palm Sunday when we first started. There was throughout the Old Testament, and for these 400 silent years up until the arrival of Jesus, a strong understanding among the people of this land that there would be a promised one arriving. One who would set things straight. Listen to the language that might be familiar to you when you think of the arrival of Jesus. These are the words they used. The promise of David's heir. The day of the Lord. A new heaven and a new earth. A regathering of Israel and the world. A new covenant. Those are the phrases they commonly used. And when John arrived on the scene and began preaching, he's coming. He's coming. Get ready. Make way, make ready the way of the Lord. Clear a path. That's why everybody was coming, because they anticipated this for a long time. Now, in the Old Testament, the word kingdom is associated with reign. But in the New Testament, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, it's associated with a kingdom that reigns with dynamic force and power. So with that in mind, look at verse 7 now. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Meaning this, at the judgment day, it doesn't matter who you are. It matters who you belong to. It matters who claims you as their own. So he's saying, you have no heritage in Abraham. God will raise up stones into children for Abraham. It's who you belong to. Now John was really emphatic about making sure that before people were baptized, they confessed their sin. And many times they would stand on the shoreline and confess it publicly and loud, saying what they did before they entered the water. That was because this was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. What we baptize today is because of a recognition that we belong to Jesus. That's a very important distinction. In verse 11 now, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. John's continuing to remind them there's somebody else coming. The promised one is about to arrive. And I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. 
and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Doesn't sound too much like a Jesus who welcomed all, does it? Sounds like a Jesus with a very strict regime of, you have to understand, my arrival brings repentance and it also brings wrath. The two are inseparable. Now you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees arriving on this scene. These guys hated each other. They despised each other's presence. The Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't like to work together. Yet, they sat on the Supreme Court. It's like the House of Representatives and Congress and Senators and the Supreme Court all arriving on the beach of the Jordan River at the same time. That's what's happening here. The entire High Council arrives and they're examining what John's doing. Because of this, only the High Court had the right to baptize people, had the right to immerse people, except for the one who would herald the way of the Messiah. This is a remarkable thing that they're watching. And John's confronting them, sees them walking towards him, and he says, Who told you, you bunch of snakes? Why did he call them that? Remember what we learned throughout Genesis in which the snake, the serpent, the viper was associated with Satan? He knew what was in their heart. And they were coming to judge him, not to join him in the arrival of Messiah. The coming of God, the coming of His reign, it either demands repentance from you or it demands God's judgment. And that's what it brings. You can't have anything else. It's one of the two. If we desire today to escape the wrath of God, to join Him in His eternal realm, we have to embrace Him in Christ alone, by faith alone, for the forgiveness of sin. It isn't because we grew up in church. It is not because we're Americans. It is not because you grew up in a home in which your parents were Christians. Jesus judges you independently upon your own walk for the forgiveness of sin in faith alone, in Christ alone. Not because of your spiritual heritage. That's what John was saying to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now just as the kingdom is dawning, also the judgment begins to unfold. The judgment arrives at the same time. They can't be separated. Any tree, regardless of its roots, regardless of the ground that it's planted in, if it doesn't produce good fruit, John is saying, it's going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. You have to produce fruit in keeping with your repentance. Now with that in mind, look at verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Many people ask this question, why did Jesus need to be baptized? I'm going to give you just a brief listen in history on the Hebrew tradition in baptism. And it's called the mikvah. So what you're about to watch today has its roots in ancient Israelology. And it was called the mikvah to them. The mikvah was an immersion in water and it represented purification, restoration. And unless someone went into the mikvah and was immersed in water, they could not participate in the religious life of the community of Israel. 
They were not allowed to because they were considered to be defiled or unclean. It says, as a matter of fact, this was so important to the people that when you look at the story in Luke about Jesus sitting down to lunch with one of the Pharisees, it's in verse 37 of Luke chapter 11. Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. If you read that in the literal Greek, it says he was surprised that he had not first baptized himself before the meal. This was a really big deal to the people of this time, to be ceremonially cleansed, to be purified. As a matter of fact, building the mikvah was so important to the people of this time that before they ever built a synagogue in a city, they would build the mikvah first. Before a scribe ever sat down to write on paper the name of God, he would go to the mikvah and be cleansed and purified. And then he could pick up his pen and write the name of God. The high priest never conducted the ceremonies of the Day of Atonement without first going to the mikvah and being cleansed and purified. That's what you see unfolding here. This is the picture. Now, the highest order of the mikvah was called that one which was fulfilling all righteousness. The one that was in the springs of living water. And living water had to be moving water, either a spring or a river. So when Jesus says, this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, He's saying, I'm about to enter into a ministry. And John understood that. And that's why it says, and then John permitted him. He's saying, I'm about to fulfill the prophecy, John. I know you know who I am. Allow it. Not because I'm repenting of sin, but because I'm about to step into ministry. The highest order of the mikvah, there's six levels of it. The very highest one was called the mikvah of living water, which was for the forgiving of sins. Very important imagery. So to the ancient Jew, the mikvah was a process of purification and cleansing. And a convert would stand on the edge of the tank. Did we bring up that picture already, Adam, of that mikvah? There it is. Looks a lot like a modern baptistry, doesn't it? That's a couple thousand years old. This goes back a long, long time. And somebody who was ready to be baptized, that's the Greek word for it, baptizo, they would stand on the side of the tank and they would say, I will do and I will hear, which is a quote from Deuteronomy. And then they would stand into the tank. Instead of being laid back by somebody like a priest, they would go straight down into the water and baptize themselves and come out. At that moment, that's why Scripture says, and Jesus stood straight up and the heavens opened to Him. A very important imagery for us to get in our heads because of this. The baptismal water, the mikvah, by the Jews was referred to as the womb of the world. Listen to these definitions of when somebody was going into the mikvah. When an individual married. When an individual became a rabbi. When an individual becomes the head of a rabbinical school. When a Gentile converts to Judaism. When an individual is crowned king of the nation. And at age 13, when a Jewish boy chose to embrace God's covenant and be numbered among the believers. 
There was one more that I'm going to tell you about, and I'm going to save that for just a moment. So at this moment, when an individual went into the mikvah and they stood up, then the priest around them watching this would say, He is born again. The womb of the world has brought forth a new life. And that's where we get the phrase from, born again. That's the origination of it. Now verse 16, Jesus arrives. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. And He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on Him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Old Testament Scriptures paint a very clear picture that when many individuals heard the voice of God, it sounded like thunder to them. And they weren't sure if they just heard thunder. So we don't know if those standing on the riverbanks actually heard the audible voice of God, or maybe just Jesus and John heard it, but saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Here's the reason God says that. Because I told you there was one more reason to enter the mikvah. The last reason to enter the mikvah and be immersed to come up out of the water was not for the forgiveness of sins, but when someone was sanctified to enter into the priesthood to become a believer. To say, I'm stepping in, I'm wearing my believing faith right out in front of me, and I'm going to work as a priest the rest of my life. With that image in mind, look at this passage from 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possessions, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9 You are the new priesthood. So you're not just identifying with Christ by being buried in baptism and risen again. But you're identifying to the world. I have chosen to do this. I am part of the priesthood of believers. Which was huge imagery for these people. To say that they were all priests means a whole lot more to them than what it does to us today. This was an anointing. Now in the Old Testament, circumcision was considered the token of God's covenant with His people. But in the New Testament, we see the same wording used associated with baptism. And with this thought, we're going to close and move into the baptism. Read this verse with me from Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him you have been made complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. There is a very powerful image associated with this. It has to do with a woman who lived in the times of Jesus, and if she owned a piece of fabric, and she wanted the fabric, let's say it was white, 
to be dyed red. She would find the village person who dyed fabrics, take it to them, and they would immerse it under water and hold it under there until the fabric became completely red. That was known as baptizing. Changing the color of the garment. Changing the image of the apparel. And it began to be associated with Christians. When they were baptized, they went into the water one color and came out another saying, this is not how we get salvation, but this is because I am deliberately looking different. I am moving towards the image of Christ. Beautiful, beautiful imagery coming out of the Scriptures on why we do baptism. Before we move into this process, and there's seven of them that are going to be baptized today, and they're all very nervous and anxious to do this, um, they have shared their testimonies on video. Guys, make your way back to the uh, areas where you're going to get into the tank. And Wendy Scott's going to go first. That'll be fun. Um, we're going to play the videos for you so that you can see their testimonies, which is about seven minutes long. And then I'm going to baptize each person. And here at New Hope, this is not a sedate experience, let me assure you. This is a fun experience. So if you feel inclined to cheer and applaud, go for it. Because if at any other time, this is the time you'd want to do that. Next time you see me, I'll be all wet. <laughs> <laughs> 